0: Uh, Fiddler on the Roof is at Encore Theatre in Dexter at 7 p.m. That continues through mid-August on the weekends. Louis Nagel is at Carrytown Concert House at 8 p.m. He's a piano professor. He's going to be playing Bach and Liszt. Liszt. And Lathal Sadie is at uh, Melange. uh Given it's 4.30, I'm going to cut it off there and tell you that events information is brought to you by Current Magazine and Arbor's Entertainment Monthly, available at many locations around town. Events info can be heard daily in the morning at 1.30, 4.30, 7.30, and 10.30, and also at 1.30 p.m., 4.30 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. Right here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It is now time for The Living Writers. afternoon. I'm T. Hutzel and You've Got Living Writers today. I'm so pleased to have here in the studio, Karen Slaughter. Karen, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, This is a taped show. We're we're talking on July 10th, 2012. Uh, Karen is here in town to read at Nicola's Bookshop. So hopefully some of you out there will have uh, caught the reading um, of Criminal. And this is basically the beginning of the tour, Karen.
1: Yes, it is.
0: <laughs> so you just left Georgia. That's right. Not, not quite too tired to function yet. So we're catching you fresh. This will be um, like a, I don't know, we're living writers. Uh, right. Break- I'm still break- living. <laughs> so I qualify. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I don't know who was naming the show originally, but Anyway, so there we go, We're, and you're writing, so you've got both camps covered. Um, so, so you're you're on book tour for Criminal. It just came out on um, July third of of uh, 2012, just now. And I was looking, and almost immediately, it's also going to be published internationally. There's a few stacked days in between, but we've got I think UK and then Holland on board. Is is that normal for when your books are coming out?
1: It is. Uh, I've been really fortunate that my books have sold well overseas in Australia, South Africa, all these crazy places where I see people posting on my Facebook page saying, hey, I got your book at whatever store. Uh, And
0: it's really fascinating to see all the different readers from around the world. And it sounds like I was looking at your website a little bit earlier today, karenslaughter.com, where you can go, you actually... uh, N- not that we want to suddenly solicit a bunch of emails but it looks like that you're 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 present on your your site as well it's, a, it's sort of your um you know at, at least from the FAQs it seems like you get maybe some emails that you want to answer some questions a- ahead of time so that people don't email you about it, the same thing but you have sort of a presence and you have a community uh Oh, absolutely. With the mystery fans?
1: I do. And, you know, it's it's not just the, the mystery or the thriller market. I get all kinds, which is really nice. Um, lots of people have been reading Fifty Shades of Grey. So, um, you, you know, I, I guess I get all kinds. Um, but it's nice to be able to have that direct interaction with my fans and for them to be able to post things like, well, what are the order of the books or when's this coming out or whatever? And then, of course, to let them know
0: when the book is available. Yes, and pretty regularly you have a new book you're you're producing. How you generate material, Karen? You're it's quite a pace. It seems like from yes, <laughs> at least I read um, a great article in um, the Atlanta uh, Magazine. On you, um, and it seems like I, I think it said like uh, eleven novels in twelve years. Is or do I have it flipped? Maybe you it's have twelve in it yes. eleven, so even more impressive.
1: Well, I did write a novella one year, so that sort of is cheating. It's not really a, a full length novel, but yeah, I mean, but most well, thriller looking, writers do that because
0: of looking at your rhythms. Is this sort of this? Um, is would this be the number of pages here? Let's see. We we're looking at four four twenty. maybe? So is this sort of the rhythm that you work in that takes this to tell the story?
1: In general, you know, some are longer and some are shorter. I try not to go more than a ream of paper. Uh, Jeffrey Deaver has an interesting insight into book length because he said now that people have computers, books are much longer, and that's probably true. I mean, Patricia Highsmith's one of my favorite authors, and I think Ripley was less than 250 pages. So we're definitely getting more long-winded, but I'd like to also
0: think that we're getting a little better and saying more about character. And in this book, Criminal, you actually, you go back 40 years. So it's covering an expansive um, bit of time.
1: Well, it is. And I've been writing about my character, Will Trent, for quite a while now. How long? uh, I think this is the sixth book with him. And he's kind of a guy who has a lot of mysteries from his past. And this was the book where I got to tell a lot about who will is and why he is the way he is and you know that came mostly from writing about his boss amanda
0: wagner and her interaction with him in his life oh so when you started criminal it wasn't as if you were thinking well by book six i should really now i can tell them the backstory about will trent it was something that happened more organically as you were um, discovering uh, amanda uh, wagner because she's the deputy Director,
1: Absolutely. For, yes. and for the she Georgia. works for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which is what Will works for as well. And the GBI is to Georgia what the FBI is to the nation. They can go into any county in Georgia and solve crimes. And, you know, they can't really take over cases. They have to be asked in on them. Unless it's kidnapping. Unless it's kidnapping or it has to do with drugs or the lottery. Um, Is the
0: lottery? Actually <laughs> like, where, well, maybe there's on? a lottery story
1: out there somewhere, um, but they do background checks for bingo halls and things like that. Um, so very exciting work on that side. But For me, I wanted to really uh, write a story about women who were police officers in the 1970s, because that's fascinating to me. How they kind of came onto the force. Exactly. And what they had to put up with, because no one wanted them on there. And a lot of women didn't understand why women would want the job. One of the biggest uh, phone calls that were reported by the police stations were women calling and saying, hey, a woman stole a police car. They couldn't believe a woman driving the car could be a police officer. That sounds
0: crazy. Now. It
1: does, and you know we still have a lot of um, different stuff going on as far as what women are perceived as capable of being able to do. Um, we see that a lot politically. We see that a lot still in the police force. And many women who are cops now will tell you, look, if you can't do the job and put up with the crap,
0: then don't do it. There's There are other jobs. And for women, that's, that's part of the job description, though.
1: Exactly. And men have to put up with a lot of crap, too. I mean, you don't see a lot of male police officers sitting around and talking about their feelings. You know, there's a certain mm. persona they have to adopt where they pretend as if nothing really infiltrates and that they're completely fine with all the horrible things they see. And one of the things I think women have brought to policing is to make them able to understand that having an emotion about these things and showing that emotion doesn't mean that they're less of a a cop. Unless of a person, it means that
0: they're actually a human being. And maybe it also takes like that sort of thinking also to see the whole picture in a way. Absolutely. And And if you look at millions of studies have
1: been done uh, on women and women in policing, mostly by people who wanted to prove they didn't belong there. Uh, But what we found over the years is that, you know, when a man would come onto a scene that was very violent, domestic violence, for instance, was a big issue. His tendency would be to use his muscle Mm -hmm. and to really put push through and get the bad guy. And women couldn't do that. They're not physically capable of, in many cases, of doing that. And so they would have to talk and de-escalate verbally. And men learn from women how to do that. And it goes much easier now. And a lot of this came through the federal government saying, look, you can't only have men on the police force. You can't only have white men, Uh, not just in the South, but all over the country. This was a big problem where only white men were policing. And, you know, you had places like Detroit, for instance, you know, which Detroit got the one of the first African-American mayors at the same time we did, and and Maynard Jackson was our mayor. And they really helped integrate the police force because policing, you know, with with segregation in policing is never a good idea. They have to feel like they're being policed by women, have to feel like they're being policed by women, men, you know, uh, the different races, the different sexes, they, they just have to feel like their opinion and their viewpoint is actually heard
0: on the other side. And understood Exactly. Some, yes. Is it because your step-aunt was um, in a detective or was part of the Forest Park um, uh, detectives that you were interested in... in Maybe looking behind the story of women being um, on the force.
1: Absolutely. Um. And my step aunt was the chief of detectives when chief. I yeah when I was older when I was in high school, and she worked her way up. And she also worked on the Atlanta child murder cases. Um. A lot of the different cases were what in different years? counties. Ooh. We're talking um, seventy eight, seventy nine. Um. Then the trial was in the the early eighties, but. The the interesting thing to me was many many women worked on these crimes and I I don't I'm not sure if it's illegal for a woman to say vagina in Michigan still uh, but they called <laughs> was them it? It, you,
0: <laughs> they oh called no. them uh, Liz will tell us <laughs> they Liz them, Watson will tell us later <laughs>
1: <laughs> they called them vagina crimes you know women worked vagina crimes anything that came out of or went into a vagina rape child abuse anything like that women dealt with and in the early days where children were turned up you know, murdered or missing, the women were the ones who were working those cases. And of course, when someone realized there was a pattern, the cases were taken away and the men were suddenly in charge. That's fair.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. But thinking about, so was it, did you know your step on well? Was it some, because... Reading about you, it's it sounds as though as even as like a little girl, you had a fascination. Like you would write creative stories, but your teacher would say to you, um, "Karen, maybe try it where one of the characters makes it out alive." Yeah, <laughs> is that true, or is that like a, is. A, a, maybe a myth that no, surrounds you? I was always killing characters, and my
1: ninth grade teacher, who was a fabulous teacher, and I dedicated my first book to her. She was a wonderful. What's woman. her name? Uh, Billy Bennett, uh, and I just. Loved loved her to death and she was really scary you know the sort of teacher who just terrified me and I mean really those are the best teachers the teachers who want to be your best friends generally aren't the best teachers the ones you're terrified of and you want to please those are the good ones and she certainly fell into that category but she was the first one who told me look you're a very good writer but you can be better and I had coasted for many years Mm -hmm. on my ability and she showed me what you can do with a story and she got me into Flannery O'Connor and uh, oh. authors like that and Gone with the Wind and Harper Lee and you know she really introduced me to writing in a Southern way, because that was important, because that's my identity, but using it in a way that you talked about a greater issue. And Flannery O'Connor, I mean, a perfect example of that. Harper Lee, I mean, how prescient was she to be writing about um, the civil rights movement wasn't even really in full swing when she wrote this novel. So it really was eye-opening to me to see what literature could do.
0: And that's what you started reading at that time. Absolutely. Because of this, this, this teacher. Yeah, yeah. Billy Bennett. Mm-hmm. And and so for your stories, what did that, I, what did that, did you just suddenly, how do you rescue characters after you've been, because ki- if you, because first of all, how did you even know you were killing them all off? I wonder like about, because was it something like, what was the reason of the story? Like the narrative? end mark of that karen or is it just we're going way back (laughs) (laughs) we don't have to stay
1: there long (laughs) i loved reading stories like that i love reading tragic stories where awful things happen and i mean honestly i'm the youngest of three girls so of course i wanted to kill
0: people (laughs) so have a bit of like i don't know some sort of working out my own demons as it were Hmm. yeah Okay, and then you started reading this this literature and, and finding that there's other possibilities for stories.
1: Absolutely, and really, you know, Flannery O'Connor
0: was wonderful at telling very
1: shocking, disturbing stories. She wrote in an amazing vernacular that was very, very um, natural for me as a reader to read because it sounded like my grandparents and the people I grew up with. And so reading her talking about real characters or seemingly real characters and using violence as a way to sort of pry that scab off the human condition. That was what was really startling to me, is not just, here's this good Christian woman writing these horrible things, but she's actually telling you a lot about society in writing these things. And how
0: human beings are working within exactly. the community.
1: Exactly, and that's really the point of good crime fiction. I mean, if you think about Michael Connelly or you know Denise Mina, I mean, Gillian Flynn, you could go on and on naming writers who are really using characters to talk about
0: what's going on in the world right now and you're doing that and you've been doing that with your books and also now you're talking about the 70s you're, you're looking yeah. back a little bit absolutely. we'll take a short break when we come back let's, would you mind reading some for us Karen? Sure. Karen Slaughter here today on Living Writers her book Criminal we'll be right back Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Karen Slaughter is here. Her novel, Criminal. Um. Let's actually. That was a little bit of some funky music from the (laughs) seventies, and it's just to. uh, We'll be getting to that. The reason for that later. But Karen, would you mind reading um for us from Criminal?
1: Absolutely. Uh, This is from the church first chapter. I think that's the best place to start, and it's dated August fifteenth, nineteen seventy four. Lucy Bennett. A cinnamon-brown Oldsmobile cutlass crawled up Edgewood Avenue, the windows lowered, the driver hunched down in his seat. The lights from the console showed narrow, beady eyes tracing along the line of girls standing under the street sign. Jane, Mary, Lydia. The car stopped. Predictably, the man tilted up his chin toward Kitty. She trotted over, adjusting her miniskirt as she navigated her spiked heels across the uneven asphalt. Two weeks ago... When Juice had first brought Kitty onto the corner, she told the other girls she was 16, which probably meant 15, though she looked no older than 12. They had all hated her on sight. Kitty leaned down into the open window of the car, her stiff vinyl skirt tipped up like the bottom of a bell. She always got picked first, which was becoming a problem that everyone but Juice could see. Kitty got special favors. She could talk men into doing anything. The girl was fresh, childlike, though like all of them, she carried a kitchen knife in her purse and knew how to use it. Nobody wanted to do what they were doing, but to have another girl, a newer girl, picked over them hurt just as much as if they were all standing on the sidelines at the debutante ball. Inside the Oldsmobile, the transaction was quickly negotiated, no haggling because what was on offer was still worth the price. Kitty made the signal to Juice, waited for his nod, then got into the car. The muffler chugged exhaust as the Olds made a wide turn onto a narrow side street. The car shook once as the gear was shoved into park. The driver's hand flew up, clamped around the back of Kitty's head, and she disappeared. Lucy Bennett turned away, looking up the dark, soulless avenue. No headlights coming, no traffic, no business. Atlanta wasn't a nighttime town. The last person to leave the Equitable Building usually turned off all the lights, but Lucy could see the bulbs from the Flatiron glowing clear across Central City Park. If she squinted hard enough, she could find the familiar green of the CNS bank sign that anchored the business district. The New South progress through commerce. The city too busy to hate. If there were men out walking these streets tonight, It was with no amount of good on their minds.
0: Thank you. The New South. Yes. So you're getting some of this, what you were just speaking about, um, Karen, into the story there. That, That might be a moment where you're actually... Showing not just a narrative intention, but that there's something deeper happening, like you 're going to be talking about this time that wasn 't such a new south
1: absolutely and you know if you think about the fact that of course the Jim Crow is something that the slave that the South has um, right, quite rightly been attached to for many years, but here are some young girls and they 're still in slavery of sorts uh, enslaved by a pimp, um, so it isn 't that new. Um, I'd like a little credit for using the names from um, uh, a certain story by Miss Jane Austen, though, because uh, people might recognize oh, the sisters. Right. <laughs> right.
0: and, yes, uh, it, it did seem, <laughs> and but terrible. I thought, is this from the Vampire Diaries? How horrible is that? Oh, my goodness. It's a little embarrassing. Yes, and I always said it. Yeah, everyone forgets. everyone it. knows.
1: Uh, and um, the name Kitty was from my friend Kitty Stockett, who wrote a book called The Help. So yeah, uh, I was talking to her last night and she said, thank you for making me a, a prostitute. The lead. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you're yeah. the cutest
0: one. I told her, "Yeah, people like you a lot. <laughs> Yeah, especially certain certain men. Exactly. Yes. Well, well. At any rate, so this is this is this um, this idea where you're sort of you're showing in a way that this book is going to be. let's see like you're slowing down in moments as well as um uh, pain Uh, obviously if you're if you're writing a a suspenseful thriller which you also have done here you're going to have this pacing and this Mm -hmm. this sort of this driving forward um but what's also interesting here is you can you can feel some of the the rhythms changing and how you were talking about with flannery o'connor with this attention to to language how things were just working um uh, like i wrote down a what was on offer was still worth the price like the this ease of language um that 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 actually um isn't isn't pushing things forward it isn't driving us to turn the page but it's actually what is enriching the the story
1: well, I'm you know, of course, I am a big O'Connor fan, and she really believed in mystery of character. You know, there's the overall mystery of what's going to happen next. But the to me, the interesting mystery is what's going to happen to this person, the mystery of the, who this character is, and how what happens is going to change them, either positively or negatively. I mean, of course, because it's a thriller, one can assume negatively. <laughs> um, but to me, that gives it a narrative drive in what I consider the softer moments. And here you have... These young girls who are on offer and in the middle of a city where they both, you know, they all know they shouldn't be there. They're only there for drugs. And this is something that happened in the 1970s. It happened in the 1870s. It's going to happen in the 2070s, you know, where these young girls are preyed on. Uh, And used by predominantly men. I mean, some women are in the trade, um, but mostly men control this trade. And there's a reason why there are more people in slavery today than there ever was in our history,
0: because this is a really a perpetual cycle for a lot of these women. So in just from the opening passages, then you've introduced the tensions um, with with regard to gender. So with um, women and men, also with race, um, because juice of the pimp is African. American and um, and I think that Lucy Bennett is white um, because we hear we actually learn her her backstory as the chapter progresses um, what what's brought her to this moment in time Um, so so that's that's interesting like you're um, you're not shying away from anything that your your southern identity is also perhaps asking of you
1: well absolutely and you know one thing that I I really was amazed to find out about Maynard Jackson, who was our first African-American mayor. Is that he didn't – I mean, of course, he cared about race, but w- as a politician, he did not see black or white. He only saw green, and he knew that the, the, tide, the tide would raise all boats <laughs> mm-hmm. and that making Atlanta a business-oriented city, it would really help the city. And if you look at the fact that we have five historically African-American colleges in Atlanta that are world-renowned and turn out some of the best African-American and white students um, – You know, whether they're doctors or lawyers or whatever, and that 70 percent of those students stay in Atlanta. Therefore, we have the largest black middle class of any major American city. I mean, you start to understand how someone like a Maynard Jackson working with business saying we have to have the best schools. We have to be able to tell a Coca-Cola or a UPS or a FedEx don't go anywhere else. We're going to train the people who can work for you right here. And he delivered
0: on that promise okay so this is part of like the the, something that you feel also is about your city that you I mean Atlanta is obviously a character talk about that a little it bit. It is please. a character.
1: And, you know, when I was growing up, and it was very much like the world Lucy sees. I lived in Jonesboro, which was about 40 minutes from Atlanta, but it was a very, very small town. Uh, and gr- I grew up, you know, much like Lucy did. Um, fortunately, <laughs> her lives didn't take the same turn. Um, but, you know... Well, you didn't have that neighbor, that helpful neighbor, exactly. sadly. Exactly, yeah. But, you know, growing up in this small town and seeing Atlanta as this big, awful city really made me hesitant about living there when i turned 18 and went to college there and you know i found out that it wasn't that horrible but when i was growing up really you only went into city if you had to work or if you wanted to see a Braves game or there was a ride on top of the riches building around the tree at Christmas time called the Pink Pig, which was a roller coaster. Uh, so you would go to go ride the Pink Pig, or you would go to the Varsity Restaurant and get a hot dog right. and a, a Krispy Kreme, and then you would go home before it got dark. Krispy Kreme, yeah, yeah. absolutely before the
0: whole nation had them. That's right. Um, well, and and many of the things that you're saying are it feel like you could be talking about Detroit in so many ways too. But Atlanta has changed.
1: It has, and it's very vibrant there. I mean, our economy is very. Very stable. Our housing hasn't seen the depression that a lot of other cities, unfortunately, had. But if you think about what was happening in the 1970s, I mean, the the presidential race was in turmoil. And, you know, we were in this horrible uh, recession and housing was down and, you know, gas was expensive. We're basically almost in the same boat now. Um, So I'm I'm really I was really conscious when I was writing that the times are not that dissimilar. Mm. So that's probably that was an important choice, really. Or... Absolutely. And, it, you know, one of the reasons I, I chose that time period was primarily because that's when Amanda Wagner, his Will's boss, was coming up in the police force. and <laughs> Something I thought... that you had sketched out in previous books. Exactly. So in your time frame. Okay. Exactly. And so I thought you know, Amanda is kind of a ball breaker. Mm-hmm. And every woman I know knows an Amanda Wagner. She got to the top and pulled the ladder up after her. Uh, and I wanted to know why she did that and why she was so much harder on the women who worked for her than the men. And if you think about what she went through and, and what she sees around her now, you know, she came up during a time when a lot of women were afraid they would be raped by their fellow police officers and they would go in pairs and, you know, they just were really conscious of that threat of violence uh, from some of them. Of course, not all of them, but, you know, the, the few bad ones really made it horrible for them. And so thinking about Amanda having to deal with this, and then now she looks at someone like Faith Mitchell, who is Will's partner, who seemingly has it so much easier. Mm. I mean, the woman can just do her job. What's up with that? <laughs> it, it gives you an understanding about why Amanda feels like she
0: needs to throw some obstacles up in Faith's way just to make her earn being there. And and maybe – so, so, and that would be – also, to make her stronger in some way, because maybe she thinks, well, so much might still be lying in wait for her, or maybe that's trying absolutely. to make too much of a
1: positive well, spin on know, Amanda. Well, <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> but criminals aren't really known for the political correctness either, you know. Um, but it was really interesting because I talked to a lot of police women who came up during then and got their stories about why they became cops.
0: It's um, part of all your research because you did lots of reading of all the newspapers of the time, magazines, etc., to get the sense of. Of it. Absolutely. And talking to them, and
1: you know, the, they really downplay it, but they were extraordinary women. Um, the, the first obstacle they had was, of course, every police officer has to take a lie detector test, but the women were asked, Are you a virgin? Uh, if you've had sex, how many partners have you had? And are you only becoming a police officer so you can meet other male police officers? And they had to answer these questions. Speed dating. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and as one of them said to me, after you know meeting her male police officers, she'd never date them in a million years. Of course, she went on to marry five and divorce five of them, but you know, that's another
0: story. It, that might be part of the lifestyle, too. <laughs> exactly. Where, you know. Well,
1: it's hard for women still today, women who are in law enforcement, it's hard for them to find men who aren't threatened by that, so they end up dating a lot of cops or military or that sort of thing because you know these are guys who are, are se- secure in their machismo, I guess. Um, but and you know it's a tough job, and you want to generally at the end of the day be around someone who understands that.
0: And did how many? You said that you talk to people um, older older women as well. And did you also talk to, or is it just something that you're always doing? Is also, do you have? friends that are detective like women that are current police officers so that you have a sense because it sounds like you also have done a lot of research where you're talking with them as well absolutely of, i know sarah linton one of your uh who's a character in criminal but you also had in your grant county um your first books the mm-hmm. first first six books yes the series oh, with um and she's a pediatrician. A small town coroner as well um so so lots of research, like knowing this the the medical background, but it seems like um maybe even this might be a stretch, but maybe people also feel detectives and police they f- might feel more comfortable speaking with you now because maybe they see some recognize some of their lives um that represented on the page,
1: absolutely, and I know by now that I'm going to be fair with them, you know, I don't make them the bad guys in general. I mean, I have some cops sometimes that are the bad guys, but I try to show Will uh, especially as a human being who has a, a res- an emotional response to what's happening and who really wants to help people. I mean, that's one thing when I'm asking questions of cops or doctors or whoever. They're in this industry or the field, rather, because they want to help people, and they're always so helpful with me, and I think they trust me by now to make sure that I'm, I'm not going to make them look like they're jerks. Because you You've been in that that is good that is nice. That's and you won't, right? You won't No, I won't. Because I really have great respect for
0: what they do. And now they maybe for you, right? As a writer, like maybe someone can understand and imagine what it's like. I would hope so. You know, it's funny because a
1: lot of police officers I know are really big readers and they love reading crime fiction. And I think one of their hobbies is to pick apart the things that are wrong. So I'm very careful because I know that they're going to be reading it. Um, You said especially with guns. Exactly. Because if you make a gun mistake, it'll haunt you for the rest of your life. I made one on my second book and I still get letters. And it's been corrected and quickly corrected in subsequent editions. So I know whoever's writing to me maybe got it out of their mother's garage or at a library or something and i want to say you didn't even pay for this you know (laughs) here you're you're complaining you got a
0: free story (laughs) we're gonna take a short break and then come back and and talk more with karen slaughter her latest criminal you've got living writers i'm t hetzel you're on wcbn fm ann arbor we'll be back You've Got Living Writers. I'm Tia Hetzel. Today on the program, Karen Slaughter is here. Her novel, Criminal. New York Times bestselling author. Up there with Shakespeare, J.K. Rowling for numbers sold, I think. I read that. That was, does that just blow your mind, actually? That like, probably well, not. Now you're like, no, I the first few million did. But I hope no. it's not all the same person. <laughs> yeah. Well, yours aren't being required in schools, so I think no. actually you should mention that whenever yeah, that. That's true. Comes well, up. you know,
1: unfortunately, more people um, pass on reading Shakespeare than should. I think, but
0: um, hopefully, people will enjoy this. Was that was Billy Bennett's um, also forcing, like not forcing, but. Oh, yeah. Introducing you, I should say, to Shakespeare. No, she had to force it on
1: me, and I ended up loving it. I mean, teachers always know what's best for you, and um, I just i absolutely love the, the intrigue. Too. Yeah. Well, I mean, in every story has a murder or some kind of awful thing happening, so who wouldn't love that? Right up your
0: alley. Karen. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the first book you wrote was a historical fiction book, right? Was that... I mean, obviously, um, this is interesting, because maybe... Um, Because this again, we've said this goes back forty years. We start in nineteen seventy four on the street of um, Atlanta. Um, But what was it like to try something after writing the historical fiction right piece, and then find something that maybe did it feel right? writing something that was suspenseful? What what happened?
1: Well, absolutely. You know, um, I did write... I tried to write a book in, in the historical fiction genre, and fortunately for me, nobody wanted it. <laughs> uh, nobody wanted to publish it. And my agent said, well, what else do you think you can write? And I said, I, I've always loved thrillers, but I don't know if I can juggle all those balls in the air. And she said, well, try it. If it's good, then show it to me. If it's not, then we'll find something else. And so I wrote my first book, Blindsided, that was my first published book, and sent it to her. And she said, you know, this is great. I really like it. And I said, well, you've taken four months to read it. And in that time, I wrote another book. So I won a two-book deal. And she said, okay, we'll send it to me. And I sent it to her, and she read it a little more quickly that time, because
0: <laughs> she knew you'd have third, <laughs> exactly. And,
1: and she called, and she said, "Okay, I think I could sell both of these." And I said, "Okay, well, I've got an outline for the third. And she said, "Stop! I think I can get you three, <laughs> but I can't do more than that." And she did. She ended up getting me that deal, which was, you know, just extraordinary that it happened. Looking back on it, I mean, it's something that you wouldn't, in a million years, think would happen. But I was very lucky.
0: And it was something where, in your mind, had you said you, I want to, you know, be published by twenty-nine or some? I've read that it was, somewhere. Yeah. About I,
1: by the time I turned thirty, I wanted to be published, and I got my contract when I was twenty-nine, and it worked <laughs> out. Yeah, but it was it was a close call. But what I found when I was writing, uh, blindsided was that I love the genre. And really, if you look at books that endure, and we talked about To Kill a Mockingbird yes. or The Great Gatsby or Gone With a Wind, if if I asked you to name something all these books had in common, it would be that there's a murder at the center. Uh, So crime is always a great way to structure a story. It has to have a beginning, a middle and an end. You ask a question at the beginning and by the last page, that question for the most part has to be answered. And I think having that to hang a story on kind of takes the burden off of a writer, you know, because you have to have this plot. There and are some deliveries you have to make. Exactly. And, you know, if, if you're writing My Navel Myself, for instance, then you don't worry so much about that. And, you know, the 400... Your little
0: known fourth novel <laughs> exactly. that is yes. now available right. <laughs> it's
1: a download. Um, but, you know, if you're writing something like that, then you can you don't have to worry about plot. But for me, I love books that tell stories. That's what I grew up with. I mean, I remember when I was a little girl, my grandmother would take me to church with her and she would introduce me to all her friends she'd say well this is mrs smith or mrs jones and as soon as the woman turned her back she would say well you know she drinks too much or you know her husband cheating details. on details exactly and that's a very southern thing um to tell everybody's business to children uh, and my grandmother loved doing that and of course she was horrified
0: when anyone told hers yes as she should be. As, exactly. yes, rightly so. It's tacky, <laughs> so. yes. Um, well, you mentioned this this um, initial response of, well, how do I um, juggle all these balls or or make sure all these threads that are required in a suspense? Now, you've said it's a way to structure a story, like something that um, a reader can even feel like they understand as they enter it. Like there's like this this contract somehow, exactly. right? But then it's allowing you to do these other other story quality things or 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 to delve into character,
1: absolutely. and I'm really when I'm writing the, the these Will Trent books or when I was in Grant County, I'm really writing about a world. I'm not writing. Uh, just a single story per se. I think of them as all fitting together. And certainly, you know, if you want to go to the beach this weekend and have a nice beach read, this is a great book for that. If you want criminal, right? but if you want deeper meaning, it's also there. And if you want to look at the books in context and see how the characters have changed and how the community changes with them, that sort of thing is there. And, and for me,
0: I like writing on all those different levels, and genuinely so because even as you're talking about the construction as you made this book. You said, well Amanda's story necessitated that we would find out more about Will's history.
1: Absolutely. So
0: it is. It's all it's it's, it's a all piece together, to yeah. And
1: it's all and it is many balls that are juggled across the series, but within the context of one book, you know, especially with Criminal, I've got these the 1940s part of sorry 40 years ago the 1970s part of the story and then i've got the present day part of the story and i have to make sure that you know hopefully when the reader is in the 1970s they're enjoying it and then when they get into the the 2012s they're thinking oh i want to be in the 1970s but then they get pulled into the 2012 and Mm -hmm. you know i want them to feel like they really are rooted in either one and want
0: to know either one Yes, that would seem important for creating the the suspense, even in having Absolutely. that pulling the or the push pull that mm-hmm. you're. Um, but does it become then more complicated as you're as you're working with a murder? We'll say as a, a death at the center. Um, as you're writing these novels, Karen, is it becoming more complicated? Was the first one in Grant County, it was about creating that place. And now you've got um, the same place, but in different eras yeah. across time. Is that something that you're doing naturally as uh, is it what the story... I mean, I think in one way, it's what the story calls for. It's what must be done now as you're looking at these characters' lives, right? But mm-hmm. is it also something as a writer that you're like, well, now I know how to juggle those balls. And so now I'm going to throw a few more into the fray.
1: Well, I think that um, after a certain amount of books, you start doing that anyway, adding more in, because you feel more confident as an author. Uh, Early on, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine named Mark Billingham, who's a wonderful English writer. And he said, you know, I keep thinking every book, it should be getting easier, but it gets harder. And that's really the case, because I want to make sure the book I deliver is the best book I can write and that it's better than the last one. And I really am competing with myself to make sure that I'm delivering a very big emotional punch and that the crime is there and that all the elements are there and the characters are there and they're really responding in a way that's believable and that makes the the readers want to know more about them. And Making sure that emotional thing works and then making sure the plot works, you know, the basic nuts and bolts of how they figure it out. It has to all be believable. And I'm an author who very much is invested in playing fair with my readers. You know, there's never going to be a scene on the last page where the butler did it. And this is the first time you've met the butler or... You know, a, a lot of times I've I've really right. been informed by working with uh, police officers and talking to police officers and people in forensics that it takes a really long time to get forensic evidence back. You know, CSI is a great bit of escapism, but, you know, I'm not going to have in my book where they find a pubic hair and say, oh, well, he was a left handed killer who hated his mother. You know, I mean, there's just not going to be that kind of forensic revelation where a lab gives you the the answer. I want to make sure that all the clues are there, so that when the reader gets to the denouement, they say, "Oh wow! Oh, I knew that was coming. You know, why didn't I see it?" And it totally makes sense that this is the bad person.
0: And they aren't blindsided. Exactly. First novel. Exactly. Also a <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Alan, we should say that you will have been at Nicholas by the time everyone's hearing this, and that there'll be signed copies of your book absolutely there, too, that people can go and and pick up a, a copy of. Um, How how did you um, get sort of the gumption then to start with this new genre like to go back to this idea of how did you decide to start putting the pieces together that made a mystery or a suspense? because now you can see it so clearly it's almost as if it's breathing to you i can tell or as soon as you start speaking i can see like your eyes light up when you start talking about this but, well my editor and i call it a matrix moment you know where you can see
1: the ones and the zeros lining up in oh, a story
0: but how did that okay how did that happen
1: I just, I can't explain it. You know, it's one of those things that authors just don't
0: know. Um, But did you start reading a lot of mysteries? Did you, you know, where you start to study or try to deconstruct something?
1: I never really studied it. I read it. uh, I've always been a huge reader. Every author I know is a reader uh, first. Because that's where you get your start, is you read something and you say, hey, I can do that or I want to do that. And, you know, I think reading all kinds of books, and not just crime fiction, though I do love crime fiction, but reading, you know, nonfiction reading, different genres, reading stuff that's absolute crap and is just enjoyable, all of that helps inform my author's brain. Mm-hmm. And it's really the most important thing you can do. I remember many years ago I was on um, a panel With a bunch of other authors and Stephen King was there and someone asked him, well, how many, what book are you reading now? And he said, I'm reading this book and I just right." And I mean, he he just really waxed poetic about all these books. And he said that for every hour he writes, he spends an hour reading. Um, And then another author who is a very big seller, but I wouldn't necessarily say they're doing a lot of interesting things, was asked, what are you reading? And she said, well, I don't really have time to read. And I thought that's why you are who you are, and that's why Stephen King will still be taught in 100 years because he's a great storyteller. He's very focused on character. He's one of our great American writers, I think. And he's a guy who understands you have to tell a story, mm-hmm. and he knows that because he's always reading.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, and the, the book that he wrote um, about writing, like after his accident. Absolutely. One of the best books on writing. Really well done. Let's take a short break, Karen, and then we'll come back, and uh, and we'll we'll have the last few minutes. It's gone quickly today on Living Writers. Karen Slaughter, her novel Criminal. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Karen Slaughter is here. Her novel, Criminal, the latest in the Will Trent epic. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it Holland or that's making the 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 TV series about Will Trent? Um, Well, they
1: did a little thing on uh, Will Trent, but um, we're hopefully going to have something happen here in the United States where we have a, a series based on my Grant County stuff. And maybe eventually will Trent, but we'll see what happens. I'm a great skeptic where television is concerned or movies. You
0: know, I won't believe it happens until it's actually on air. Well, you would would you want to be part of writing the the screenplay and reworking oh, it for the screen? Absolutely. And I've okay. actually
1: I've worked with my uh, a writing partner named Scott Shepard, um, who's done television for a really long time, and we have a, a script we did, and we're real happy with it. So we'll see what happens. Oh,
0: that's congratulations! I will. Well, fingers crossed. Absolutely. And when you say writing partner is this someone that you like they're your first reader and then you read you're their first reader that's or do you collaborate on on some books too not obviously not criminal but um no he's new uh... new to karen slaughter (laughs) so no, he's, we're working together
1: on the script on the television side, but he's a, um, he likes my, my books, obviously, and, you know, I've had lots of offers over the years for people to option my books, and I haven't really been interested because I didn't really trust them with the work, but um, his production company, I really like the people there, and I feel like they can do something, and, you know, it's sort of like I, I was talking to Lee Child about this because he's so pleased with the Jack Reacher movie, and the the person who wrote the script really talked to lee about what his idea of, was for this character and the sorts of things that jack reacher would do and, and and i know that that's the kind of conversation a writer wants to have because these are really these characters are like friends of mine and i don't want to just turn them over to anybody
0: and you know what will trent would do exactly in, in any given situation exactly so why not ask you right exactly yes <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about your website so folks can check that out. KarenSlaughter.com. Um, we also mentioned research, the the, uh, the amount of research that you did for, for this book, probably all the books. Um, Tell us a little bit about what somebody might find. Some maybe interactive qualities on the the yes. the, the site. Well, there's a special criminal section where I have a lot of uh, Atlanta. special <laughs> criminal. Yes,
1: <laughs> a lot of Atlanta photos. You know what it looked like in the 1970s. What it looks like now. And to me, that sort of thing is fascinating. I could stare at it for hours. And these photos and you probably
0: did. I, I do. Are yeah. recreating this, and yeah. imagining.
1: And these photos are what I use to make sure I could get things as accurate as possible. Um, there are also maps and things like that and I've made a couple of little small movies that show some advertisements um That maybe will make you laugh when you think, oh, Frederick's of Hollywood or, you know, um, Sears being the fashion place. Remember those ads and and things like that. And I also have some footage of a police officer from the 1970s, a woman who was doing an interview for um, a documentary that was filmed about the Atlanta Police Department, as well as, um, you know, a nice little uh, film that shows the photos a little better uh, and has some nice music with it. And I paid a lot of money for the clearance on that music
0: so i'd like for people to watch it to go and enjoy exactly okay so you heard it KarenSlaughter.com. go go listen to some of it. Mm. do some clicking um you you also gave in your acknowledgments gave a shout out karen to the atlanta um historic the let's historical center
1: yes and i got a lot of the photographs from there and it's just a really rich depository of all things atlanta i mean everything you would expect of course but about people and they've done a lot of um audio recordings they've filmed a lot of people where they've interviewed them about atlanta um they have many police officers i mean atlanta has Uh, So much that has happened as far as the civil rights movement. So there are lots of interviews uh, with people talking about that. Um, Atlanta has a large gay population. So there are a lot of I mean, the people have really just looked at the the population as a whole and said, let's talk to these people before they die. So we have on
0: uh, tape what was happening then. And do you do you need to have a certain defined research project before you go in there? Or is it a place where you can, as a member of the public, go in and start seeing some of the photographs or listening to someone's um, voice telling, you know, documenting what happened to them? At you can absolutely
1: time? do that. You don't have to have uh, credentials or anything. I mean, it really is a library. And I use libraries a lot for my research. There's the Auburn Avenue Research Library, which is right down the street from where Martin Luther King Jr. preached at Ebenezer Baptist Church. So there's a lot of stuff there. Of course, John Lewis is my local representative. Um, and you know my local library uh, in Decatur, which is right outside of Atlanta, has a lot of stuff on him. So I've, I really just availed myself of all these great institutions. The Library of Congress has a vast online database database. Um, and when I was researching Techwood Homes, uh, which was the first public housing project in America opened in the 1930s, Georgia Tech, you know, University right next door. Their library had lots and lots of material. They had um, the early plans for the for Techwood Homes. They had the drawings.
0: They had the photographs. I mean, it, it really was a wonderful place to look in. A day like that, you must be so like like a like a kid like so excited when you come across something like this new cachet of like treasure of history. absolutely and. I wasted
1: so much time just because it was so fascinating. You were absorbing it. Exactly. Yeah, I was getting into the mood, sort of like when I was listening to lots of um, music like Dr. John or whatever. I was absorbing that or looking at, you know, it's, it's fun watching old television commercials, for instance, and looking at, you know, old TV shows and trying to pick up the language, you know, like what it is, or, you know, Foxy, people use that a lot. I mean, it was just really a lot of fun going back into and in looking at
0: that. Do you find yourself then trying to bring back Foxy, for example? Like we Absolutely. need it's something that needs to be sort of...
1: Well, yeah, a, I mean, I remember when I was um, a little girl, my sister, who was much older than me, said her, her boyfriend was a stone-cold fox. And I think that's much better than some of the descriptors we have today. That's
0: true. You wouldn't really think maybe Justin Bieber was that. No. Perhaps. no. Well, maybe when he goes through puberty. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you feel strongly about this person. (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, And, well, you mentioned libraries. And this is a passion of yours, something that you believe strongly in. You, you, um, uh, save the libraries movement you you have um one of your books uh the novella i think is available um to download and then the proceeds, one hundred
1: percent of the proceeds go to benefit libraries. The Save the Libraries project and people can read about it at savethelibraries dot com. And basically, it's a trust that I set up, and we have for the most part given block grants to different libraries in need. Um, we have done some events. We did one in Atlanta, one in Boston. We hope to do one in Seattle soon, where thriller writers, who you know, thriller writers tend to be popular writers. Yes. Uh, We will pay our way to go to these events. We'll pay for our hotel and flight. We'll even drive ourselves from the airport. And we'll show up at the library and help raise as much money as we can. And then, you know, we go home and all the money goes to the library. Um, a, good, a good part of the money has been raised through the short story you just mentioned, Thorn in My Side is what it's called. And if you download that, um, 100% goes to the libraries. Um, we've made some grants in England to help the library organization there. Um, we're looking for one in Holland. Um, fortunately, Holland, um, their government has written into their laws that they have to protect libraries, so uh, they haven't found a way around that. England also has a law like that, but their um, local They've been away <laughs> politicians at it. have found a way around it. Yeah, um, but you know, it's the library is the backbone of the community, and it's not just a place where people can read for pleasure. We know that kids who read are better students. Someone who is a good student is going to go to a university, hopefully like the fine one we're in right now. Go blue. And someone who graduates from this university is going to pay higher taxes. The obverse of that is that something like 85% of all kids who are in the juvenile justice system are functionally illiterate. So what does that say to you as a community? Where do you want to spend money? Do you want to put it in the juvenile justice system? Or do you want to spend a dollar on a kid when he's two or three years old and have him return taxes fivefold to the community? So I see. For you it's all about
0: the taxes. It's not about the magic of the imagination. Well, I, I just I talked, I'm totally because no, I see like I, I can see where you, you almost feel like you have to make your case for it. Absolutely. Right? Because
1: politicians cr- don't see this. You know, they say in one small town where they were trying Trying to shut down the library, the politician said, well, of 5,000 people in our community, only 2,000 have library cards. And I said, look at the the register, the roll register for voters. Less than 1,000 people voted for you in the last election. Is that a meaningful number now? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially with the economy as bad as it is, more people are using libraries. Um, if you wanted to work at Walmart, you can't just walk into Walmart and apply for a job. You have to do it online. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a computer at home, then you can't Apply for that job a lot of health care benefits are now everything is automated everything is online if you don't have access to that you don't have access to the world at large and I talk about it in terms of taxation and money because that's one thing politicians hopefully would understand but it's not really a political issue it's not Democrats versus Republicans versus libertarians no, it's justice everybody it's reads cute. everybody there's not a person in government today who has not at one point been in a library. And, you know, even people who are in part of the Tea Party movement are for keeping libraries open. Well, you might say, well, why is that when they want small government? Well, textbooks are expensive. Lots of Tea Partiers homeschool. So they want the government to buy these textbooks and have them at the library so they can check them out. So, you know, this is like... A universal need. Mm -hmm. And kids who don't have that access are never going to get ahead. And that's really what America to me is all about is saying, look, as long as you're willing to put into the work, you can actually make yourself better. And if it's reading a book that transports you somewhere else in the world, to me, that
0: betters your society i think it was um your father actually would um w- understood your or saw your love of books and and recognized it in you even though he he wasn't uh, and maybe an avid reader himself and in your open letter uh to uh, the editorial uh, mm-hmm. um I, could you tell us the story about your your father the the
1: Well, he grew up very poor. Um, He was one of eight children. Um, His father was basically useless. Uh, He was kicked out of the Klan for not taking care of his family. Um, And so you can imagine the sort of childhood my dad had. And reading wasn't something that was celebrated. They didn't have books. And, you know, if you wasted three hours reading a book, that was not a good thing. You know, if you have that amount of time, you should be picking cotton or working or making money. And he really just was tickled that I love to read and that he could give me a life where I could be a reader. And he encouraged that and made sure that every weekend I was at the library and you know, he told me I could check out any book I wanted so long as if I had questions I would ask him. And it really worked for me. And that it wasn't
0: just about escape. It was about going beyond.
1: Absolutely. And if you look at, for instance, Carnegie started the Carnegie Libraries. Here was a man who had everything that he could ever want in the world. And he when he chose to give back, he looked at what was useful to him as a child. Mm-hmm. And in Scotland, this is where public libraries really came into fashion. Usually they were private, gentleman-only libraries. Um, but in Scotland, they said, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to let people read. And that's where Andrew Carnegie got his education, was the library. Ray Bradbury's the same thing. He couldn't afford to go to college. So every night after work, he would go to the library. And he typed Fahrenheit 451 on a typewriter he rented for 10 cents an hour at the library and you know when you think about the fact that maybe there's a Ray Bradbury now working on a computer in the library because they don't have one at home it's the same
0: thing save the libraries yes and and go to save the libraries.com. Absolutely well to find and out more. Thank absolutely. You, thank you, Karen Slaughter. Thank you. Um thanks for your stories and, and thanks for your passion as well. Um Karen Slaughter, her latest criminal, a novel. You've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks to Liz Wasson for engineering. Thanks so much. And Karen, thank you so much for being here today. Um thanks everyone for listening. Karen Slaughter, criminal, I am T Hetzel. Until next time.
2: Sweet Georgia Brown Two left feet but oh so neat Sweet Georgia Brown They all sigh and want to die For sweet Georgia Brown I'll tell you just why You know I don't lie Not much It's been said she knocks him dead When she lands in town since she came white, it's a shame how she cools him down. <sighs> fellers. she can't get off, fellas. She ain't met George. Who'd you claim to Georgia? Named her street Georgia Brown. No, we can make it down. has got a little shade on. Sweet, Georgia Brown.
0: This is free speech radio news for Wednesday, July eleventh, 2012 in Los Angeles. I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, the Green Party's Jill Stein announces her vice presidential candidate Sherry Honkala used to be homeless and spent decades fighting for welfare reform. Real power is challenging the folks that are in power and control the country. And it's not just the big banks and the bad guys. It's also our politicians that are just standing by, acting like psychopaths, like they don't even care. Farmers push for more support for small-scale and organic agriculture as